As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push And from the lordly Salda to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. As happy as a butter clam, when tides are high I sing. A grateful ode to Puget Sound, the land of everything. I love it from Tulalip to Puyallup, Squim and Pisht. And to the Dosey Wallops, where so many times I fished. From Brennan to the Boca Chile, from Lummi to La Push. And from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for this revised episode. This is Episode 4, The Maury Island UFO Incident. Prior to so-called European discoveries, Native Americans had lived on Maury Island for centuries. The portage was a preferred hunting ground, with woven nets spanning the short distance between the two islands to catch low-flying waterfowl. In 1792, during exploratory missions on Puget Sound, Captain George Vancouver named Vashon Island after his friend, Captain James Vashon. When Lieutenant Charles Wilkes surveyed the sound in 1841, he named Maury Island after William A. Maury, a member of his crew. William Maury would later serve in the Confederacy during the Civil War, where he raided Union ships on behalf of the Confederates. He is buried in Caroline County, Virginia. At the time, there was a portage between the two islands. The Point Robinson Light is located on Point Robinson, it's on the northeast corner of Maury Island in Puget Sound. The lighthouse marks the halfway point between Seattle and Tacoma. Point Robinson, also known as Robinson Point, was so named in 1841 by the Wilkes Expedition in honor of John Robinson. He served as quartermaster for the exploring and surveying party. In 1879, the Lighthouse Board recommended that a steam fog whistle should be erected at Point Robinson, which was roughly nine miles from Tacoma and was then the prospective terminus of a branch of the Northern Pacific Railroad. Prior to 1925, Maury Island was only accessible by boat or bridge at high tide. Now, however, the island is easily reached from the larger Vashon Island, via a paved road over a narrow strip of land. A 325-foot-long, 102-foot-wide dry dock, 
that was originally built for use in Port Townsend in 1891 would be sold and then moved down south to the sheltered cove of Quartermaster Harbor between Vashon and Maury Islands. This was mainly due to the bottom falling out of the Port Townsend real estate market. Once the dock was put into place, the community that sprouted up around it was named Docton. This dry dock was one of the largest on the Pacific coast, and some ship owners on Puget Sound now had to get their ironwork done on a tiny island, not Seattle or Tacoma, to which they had been accustomed. Dry dock workers originally had to commute by steamer from Tacoma, but a hotel was quickly built to house them during the week. One of the first boats repaired in the dock was the Wetmore, a whaleback steamer built at West Superior, Wisconsin. It was brought to the Northwest by way of South America. Maritime business was good in Docton up until the depression of the 1930s. The Martin Illich sons retired and shipyard operations seized. With the onset of World War II, newer and larger facilities in Tacoma, Bremerton, Everett, and Seattle came into play. And soon, the heyday of Docton's shipbuilding and boat repair days was over. Logging and fishing continued, but the island never truly became self-sufficient. Some islanders thought they should secede from King County and form their own county, but many realized that they were dependent on outside resources. As a perfect example of this, when the phone service arrived, a cable needed to be laid deep under the waters of Puget Sound. The islanders weren't independent enough to do that themselves. Hmm, and they thought leaving the county would be a good idea. I think not. Maury Island was the center of a recent controversy between the locals and Glacier Northwest, a company which supplies ready-mixed concrete and is owned by the Taiheo Cement Company of Japan. The company intended a 300-fold expansion of their existing gravel mine on the island, which was previously permitted to extract up to 20,000 tons per year. With the expansion, the company would have been able to extract up to 40,000 tons per day. An opposition group quickly sprang up of local islanders and was known as Preserve Our Islands. They staunchly advocated gathering more information before continuing mining operations on Maury Island. The operations would ultimately be denied and public open space would be curated, ensuring critical protections for local marine habitat. Now let's take a quick sponsorship break and I'll be right back. In 1947, logs floating in the waters of Puget Sound were a common hazard in the waters of the South Sound. Typically, these logs escaped from jams at nearby lumber mills where these logs awaited their turn to be milled into lumber. Patrol crews were known to ply the waters from Olympia on up to Bellingham, keeping the waterways clean and free, while also rustling up the runaway logs. They ensured that the mills wouldn't lose much product and made themselves a good amount in salvage fees. It was June 21, 1947, when Harold was aboard one of these patrol boats, while his supervisor, Fred Chrisman, was on shore. Dahl reported that he was on the boat with his son, Christopher, as well as two more men of his crew and the Dahl's family dog. Their boat approached the eastern shore of Maury Island, which is about six miles from Des Moines. Harold looked up to the sky and reportedly saw six flying objects and guessed they were about 2,000 miles above his boat. 
He described the objects as being made of some sort of reflective material, that they were donut-shaped, and that they were each roughly 100 feet in diameter. The center holes, Dahl estimated, were about 25 feet in diameter. Dahl also saw what he thought were round portholes and an observation window on each craft. Reportedly, the five other craft circled over the sixth, which then began to act incredibly strange. The lowest craft began to drop slowly, then it stopped and hovered about 500 feet above the water. Dahl began to put his boat ashore, recalling later that he feared that the aircraft was going to crash into his boat. Once on land, Harold Dahl took several pictures with his camera. He described the lower craft staying in position for roughly five or so minutes, then another ship broke formation and began to move down. The moving craft then touched the bottom craft, maintaining contact for several minutes. After what seemed like hours, but was only just a few minutes, they heard a loud thud. This was suddenly followed by what Dahl originally thought to be newspapers. Most of this debris landed in the bay, while some landed on the beach. Dahl cautiously approached some of this debris and found that it was a very lightweight material. In addition to this metal, the ship dumped roughly 20 tons of a dark, molten metal, which Dahl later said resembled lava rock. When it hit the water, this substance was so hot that a massive amount of steam erupted from the dump site. Dahl and his crew then hurriedly took cover after some pieces hit the boat. Some debris hit his son on the arm and burned him. Sadly, another piece landed on their dog, and it did not survive. Once this dumping was complete, the craft slowly regained altitude, rejoining the other ships, then headed west out over the Olympics and then disappeared. Upon regaining his wits, Harold Dahl scrambled to his boat, and upon making an attempt to call out on the radio, he found that it was not working. As Harold sailed his boat back to dock, he performed a burial at sea for their family dog. Once he was back on land, Harold took his son to the hospital to receive burn treatment and then told the bizarre, somewhat unbelievable story to his boss, Fred Chrisman. When the photographs Dahl captured were finally developed, they incredibly showed the weird airships, backing up Dahl's claim of the events of that afternoon. These photos had spots all over them and Dahl mused that it might have been caused by an exposure to radiation. Chrisman did not believe this incredibly far-fetched story that his employee was telling him. Though he agreed to go himself out to Maury Island, once Chrisman made it out to the spot where this event took place, he was able to recover several samples of the rocks. He reported that while he was retrieving these samples, a strange craft which he recognized from one of Dahl's photographs, just hovered above as if it was somehow observing what was going on down below. Dahl would tell investigators that the next morning, a strange man wearing a black suit visited him and then suggested that the two get breakfast together. Dahl wasn't really all that concerned, so he agreed and drove his own car, following behind the stranger's brand new black Buick. The stranger asked not a single question while they ate. Instead, strangely, he recounted in incredible detail the events Dahl experienced the previous day. The strange man in black then told Dahl that terrible, bad things would happen to him 
if he didn't keep quiet about what happened on that beach on Maury Island. Undeterred by this threat, Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman went on to get into contact with Ray Palmer, a publisher who, a couple years later, would found Fate magazine. Ray Palmer lived in Chicago at the time, so Dahl and Chrisman sent him a package which contained a box of these weird metal fragments and written notes explaining what happened that July 21, 1947 afternoon. Palmer then got in touch with Kenneth Arnold, who himself had recently reported seeing flying saucers near Mount Rainier since he had heard that Arnold had began investigating these UFOs. Arnold came up to Tacoma sometime in late July with a fellow investigator, pilot E. Smith. They went on to thoroughly examine Dahl's boat and interviewed both Dahl and Chrisman. This was when their story began to get just a little vague and started ringing silent little alarm bells in the heads of the investigators. The supposed pictures that were captured when developed were not presented during this investigation. Dahl then claimed that his son had gone missing and he had no clue where he was located. Dahl would later say that his son was randomly found in Montana, waiting tables. He claimed not to remember how he got there. On the afternoon of the 31st of July, the investigation was joined by Captain Lee Davidson and First Lieutenant Frank Brown of the U.S. Army Air Force. They flew into Tacoma from Hamilton Field in California. As well as being veteran pilots, the two were also considered to be intelligence specialists. The pair then proceeded to meet with Arnold and his partner Smith, as well as Chrisman. The meetings ended up taking the better part of the rest of the day. One of the Army investigators said that he thought there very well could be something to all of this, but they were not able to stay to investigate further, for the pair was due to depart at around midnight. They were in a hurry to be at Hamilton Field that morning, August 1st, the day that the Air Force was to officially separate from the Army. Plans were delayed slightly, and the two officers finally departed McCord Airfield at around 2 that morning. They were flying in a surplus B-25 bomber, which had an additional two crew members aboard. Barely 20 minutes into their flight, the plane crashed outside of Centralia. The two unnamed crew members survived, but the two investigative specialists would not, making them the first two casualties in the history of the Air Force. Dahl and Chrisman stated that the officers collected some of the strange metal, which they labeled as top secret. Some crazed newspapers even became so bold as to report that the plane had been shot down to cover up any information the pair had found. Due to the loss of life and the publicity surrounding the event, the Air Force broadened their investigation and the FBI started an investigation of their own. The Air Force determined that the crash was simply a tragic and horrific accident, which was caused by an engine catching fire. Another Air Force investigator studied Dahl's boat and determined that the damage did not match the extent of the damage that had previously been described. There was, conveniently, no piles of metal on Maury Island that the investigators could find, and the samples that were found merely resembled simple slag from a smelter, of which there were a few in the general area. The FBI then tersely issued a warning to the two men, believing it was merely a hoax, and that if the men did not completely drop the matter, they would charge them with fraud. 
These claims had already resulted in the two deaths, and the federal officials were not apt to deal with any more of these bogus stories. This was a very generous offer, and initially, Dahl and Chrisman went along with the intended plan. They recanted their story of that afternoon and denounced it all as a hoax. They refused to give any further interviews as well. This wouldn't last long, and by 1950, an issue of Fate, the previously mentioned magazine that was published by Ray Palmer, ran an article in their January edition where Chrisman claimed the events were in fact the complete truth. Kenneth Arnold included the story of the Maury Island UFO incident in his 1952 book, The Coming of the Saucers. Most people today, however, believe that the whole thing was faked and it was just a hoax that got entirely out of hand. There are some out there that think this event is completely true, and a smaller group of conspiracy theorists think that the federal government might have been dumping nuclear waste into the Puget Sound. But the question remains, why did so many branches of the government, the Army, the Air Force, the CIA, and the FBI aggressively investigate these sightings? If it was simply nothing, why waste the resources on such a triviality? What is known, however, is that this incident is one of the first to involve a reported mysterious, strange man in black who claimed to know way more than he should have. According to the movie, the Maury Island Incident's screenwriter and producer Steve Edmiston says historical context matters. In May 1947, President Truman announced the Containment Doctrine, identifying less than two years after World War II our new enemy, the Soviet Union. And it may well be that the purpose of these aggressive government investigations of objects in the sky merely derived from profound concern that the U.S. was being overflown by a new hostile adversary. Edmiston based the Maury Island incident on declassified FBI documents directly tying then-FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to the investigation and alleged cover-up. These FBI documents associated with the Maury Island incident remained classified for 50 years. Partially in response to the success of this 2014 film, the Burian UFO Festival, BUFO for short, was launched by entrepreneur John White. Maury Island can be seen from the shores of Burian and Des Moines. Inspired by the story and the local roots of the film, along with continued community interest in this history, White conceived of the one-day annual celebration as a way to extend the story through audience participation. BUFO draws thousands of attendees each year and is quite the fun time if you've never been. The festival integrates film screenings and includes an annual viewing of the Maury Island incident. The 2017 showing channeled Mystery Science Theater 3000 when it featured live commentary. You can think of BUFO as... Just a big geeky space party featuring thousands of people and dogs dressed in extraterrestrial costumes, some UFO-themed guest speakers, a couple DJs, and a refreshing beer garden. A mural to commemorate the incident was originally installed in 2013 on the side of a building in Old Burien. It was removed after a five-year run before being bought by the city of Des Moines, 
it would be restored, then made its Des Moines debut at the 2019 Burning Saucer event in Des Moines. The mural has been mounted on the side of a container owned by the new Des Moines photography business Harper Studios, which is located at 605 South 223rd Street. The mural was commissioned by Berrien resident John White, who also executive produced the film, and was curated by artist Zach Paul. My sources for this episode were The Daily News of Longview, SeattleSouthside.com, Maury Island UFO The Christman Conspiracy by Ken Thomas, KNKX, The Maury Island UFO Incident, The Story Behind the Air Force's First Military Plane Crash, Weird Washington, and of course, Scott Schaefer's incredible 2014 film, The Maury Island UFO Incident. Thank you for listening to this revised and corrected episode 4 of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the theme song for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Jimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.